0: I was feeling uh, kind of nostalgic this week and uh, thinking about my childhood and thinking about uh, watching sports with my dad. I have a lot of fond memories as a child of sitting in our family room watching whatever it was. Uh, we loved to watch the Yankees. I grew up as a youngster in the Northeast. And uh, for baseball, of course, always watched the Cowboys. Uh, and uh, we watched, I can remember watching boxing matches, tennis matches, golf. Uh, it was just always... Uh, Fun just to sit there. My dad was very much into sports. I think that's why I'm into sports and my boys and my kids, not just the boys, are into sports. Every Sunday, as you've heard me say, at game time, we all don, even my little four-year-old granddaughter, our cowboy jerseys and sit around the, the game and watch it. We had to miss it last week because I was speaking. I'll have to miss it again today because I'm speaking tonight by, via live stream at a conference. But uh, I was thinking about when we would watch the Cowboys. And during the 80s, when I was a junior high school and high school The Cowboys were terrible. I mean, they were just the the worst. This was the low point in their life. And so it wasn't much fun to watch the Cowboys. And one thing that that I remembered was that there was one lineman for the Cowboys, offensive lineman, who just was notorious for getting holding calls, especially at the worst possible time. And so inevitably there would be a flag on the play, and my dad and I would look at each other, and usually my dad would say before the referee even called the number, Paz Derek. and He was talking about Phil Paz Derrick. He was a alignment for the Cowboys in the 80s. In fact, he has the distinguishment of being the tallest Dallas Cowboy ever. He was half an inch taller than Ed Tutal Jones, the defensive player. He was six foot nine inches and something tall, nine point something inches tall. But that was his distinction. That was his claim to fame was he was always getting called for holding. So inevitably there'd be a flag on the play. My dad would say, There's old Paz Derek again. And sure enough, the referee would say, Holding, number 75, still remember his number, on the offense. Well, you know, as an offensive tackle, the last thing you want to hear is your number being called. And as I was thinking about uh, our study of Nehemiah, when you get to chapter 11, it's all about people whose names were seldom called. They were the unknowns of their day. And yet, when God called upon them to make a major sacrifice for the good of the people, the good of Israel as a whole, these unknowns uh, stepped up and, and helped make Jerusalem tick. And, and isn't that the way that it often works? The people who get the least attention uh, are the ones who often really deserve it. You know, the funny thing is, as I was thinking about the 80s, I can't name a single other offensive lineman on the, on the Cowboys from the 80s. I mean, I'm sure if you were a real devoted fan or a statistician, maybe there was even some Hall of Famers. I don't know. But I remember Paz Derrick for all the wrong reasons. The fact that I can't remember any of the other offensive linemen probably means they were doing their job. They never had a holding call. They never lost a tackle. They never got beat so that the quarterback was sacked. So they really deserve to be remembered. They deserve to have their name uh, etched in my memory. But poor... Paz Derek uh, is the one who gets the memory because he kept getting so many holding calls. I hope he doesn't watch this message. I don't even know if he's still with us or not. But anyway, no, nothing personal, Phil, just sharing a childhood uh, memory. But, um, you know, it's the people who deserve the recognition who often don't get it, and the people who don't deserve it who really sometimes rise to fame. So turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 11. Uh, As we've talked about, when the exiles returned to the promised land, living in Jerusalem wasn't that attractive of an option because the city was still in ruins. And uh, so very few people lived within the city walls because of the rubble. Now, even after they finished the wall and hung the gates, and as we talked about last time, you know, had celebrations and, and so forth, it still was was not the most desirable place because by then people had set up their homesteads outside the walls and the surrounding areas. But now, as we read in Nehemiah, it was time to start populating the city. It was time to bring uh, people in. And Nehemiah, as the governor at the time, he, he saw the wisdom of populating the city. It, it needed people in there so they could begin to do some more of the cleanup and get back into a routine and get back to the way things were so he started encouraging people to live within the city walls and really nehemiah chapter 11 if you just kind of glance down at it in your bibles you see it's basically a a a chapter of names uh tribes and people and groups of people it's a list of unknowns if you will in fact if, if it weren't for this chapter we wouldn't even know some of these people existed it's kind of like the begat section in in genesis it's one of those that you tend to just kind of skip over Uh, But obviously, all Scripture is profitable, and as I was uh, reading through in the flow of thought in Nehemiah, the the thought that came to my mind is, are you willing to be unknown? These people were willing to be unknown, and they they made a difference. So we see, if you look at the whole chapter, you see uh, these numbers of people. In fact, the text early on tells us these numbers. There were 468 laymen from the tribe of Judah, There were 928 laymen from the tribe of Benjamin, 1,192 priests, 284 Levites, and then 172 gatekeepers. And other than their roles, we don't know much about these people. They weren't famous. They weren't, you know, receiving all kinds of awards and accolades. They didn't have positions of stature and power and prominence. I love what Warren Wiersbe said. I've, I've referred to him a lot in this journey through Nehemiah, but in his commentary on Nehemiah, he says, Never underestimate the importance of simply being physically present in the place where God wants you. You may not be asked to perform some dramatic ministry, but simply being there is a ministry. He goes on to say the men, women, and children who helped to populate the city of Jerusalem were serving God. They were serving their nation. And they were serving future generations by their step of faith. And they were setting an example. And that's why we have this chapter, I think, in Nehemiah. You know, the life we live now is about our eternity. Not whether we're going to spend it in heaven or hell. That's a matter of a free gift paid for by the blood of Christ. We simply receive it as a gift by faith. Faith is the mechanism of receiving the gift of eternal life. But once you've done that, then really your life on earth is just a speck on the timeline of eternity. We've talked about this a lot. It's a something that I have to keep reminding myself of because we can become so consumed with the stresses and the pressures and the heartaches and the trials and the tribulations of life that we forget if you're a child of God, if you've trusted Christ, you're just a pilgrim passing through. This is just a speck on the timeline of eternity. And therefore, it should make a difference in how we view life on our perspective. And it really all comes down to a heavenly versus an earthly perspective. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning as we ask the question, are you willing to be unknown on earth, that is. Paul describes this dichotomy between a heavenly and earthly perspective in several places in his writings. But here in Colossians 3, he says, if then you were raised with Christ, that is, since you're a believer, since by faith you've trusted Christ, you've been made born again, and now you're part of the family of God seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God set your mind on things above not on things on earth i mean you can't get more clear than that it's it's about perspective. Now we have a job to do. God has us here for a reason. That's the reason the minute you place your faith in Christ, you don't just go poof and find yourself in glory in heaven. We still have a job to do. And the, the whole New Testament is all about our life that we're, we're supposed to live for the Lord, be fulfilling the great commission, making a difference. As Paul said, shining like stars in this perverse generation and, and all of that. So we can't just you know move to a mountaintop and sing kumbaya and wait for the Lord to come back. We have a job to do. But as we do that job, our perspective should be different than the worldly people, the people that don't know the Lord, that are just confined in their whole perspective to this life. We have different motivations, different reasons, different goals. It's all about perspective. Uh, Jesus has a lot to say about this as well. And I remember one occasion uh, with Peter, where Peter asked Jesus, Lord, we're following you, we're giving up a lot, we've left our family. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, and so what are we going to get when we get to the kingdom? What's in it for us? He basically asked. And Jesus uh, tells him, well, you know, when you get to heaven, you're going to get rewards. You're going to get, you know, you're going to get to sit on 12 thrones with me. You're going to get to rule. In fact, he goes on to say everyone. And I'll look at this passage in more detail in a second. But everyone who does it is going to re- be rewarded. Uh, so the motivation for us as we have a heavenly perspective but live in earth is to recognize that someday we're going to be famous in heaven even though we're unknown on earth. Someday we're going to hear the Father say, well done, good and faithful servant. But I remember on another occasion, Peter uh, was guilty of not having that heavenly perspective when the Lord laid in his earthly ministry, told very plainly the disciples that he was headed to the cross. Essentially, he was going to have to suffer and die. And Peter, as he often did, put his foot in his mouth and he said, no, no, not not you, Lord. That That... That'll never happen to you. And the Lord rebuked him sharply, and he said this, Get behind me, Satan. Now, I mean, this is probably fairly self-evident, but I'm not sure there's any worse rebuke you can hear than being called Satan. You don't want to hear, especially from the Lord, being called Satan. And that's exactly what he did here. And by the way, this is important because when you get to John, the apostle, who writes toward the end of the first century, his epistles and the book of Revelation, he was no doubt here on this occasion, and he, he talks about how believers, that's you and I if you know the Lord, who are not abiding in Christ, not remaining in close fellowship with Christ, are actually acting like children of the devil. Did you know that a Christian can be a child of the devil, at least in their behavior? So this is why it's so critical to maintain, as we read Scripture, the distinction between our position in Christ, which can never change. Once you trust Christ, you are in Christ permanently and therefore a child of God versus our practice, which often doesn't comport with our position. The goal is for our practice to match our position. But guess what? Even though we're a child of God, we don't always act like a child of God. And when you cater to the flesh, when you stop abiding in Christ, when you drift away from the Lord, you can act like a child of the devil. It's the reason it's so important when you see Christians living in sin, not to so hastily say, oh, they can't possibly be a Christian, or they're going to hell. Look at what they're doing. Because thereby by the grace of God go I. Any, There's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he's catering to the flesh, right? So the goal of the Christian life is to walk by faith. And so notice what uh, Jesus says to Peter. First, after calling him Satan, uh, he says... And by the way, Satan is exclusively focused on the earth. After he got kicked out of heaven for that failed coup attempt, he wants this world to be his own. He he wants to take over the world. That's what Psalm 2 says. There's this conspiracy uh, that people are trying to throw off the shackles of, not shackles, but what they view as shackles of God's control. Uh, And the Bible says the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this age. And actually, he's going to succeed for at least seven years when the Antichrist takes the throne of this tyrannical uh, regime. Uh, So Satan's perspective is only earthly. The believer's perspective should be spiritual, should be heavenly. But notice what the Lord goes on to say. You are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. There it is, that heavenly versus earthly perspective. When Peter said, no, Lord, we don't want you to die, He was focusing on an earthly perspective. God had other plans. God was doing something much bigger. And it involved, of course, the atoning sacrifice for sin. that goes all the way back to Genesis uh, 3.15. But you see this dichotomy between the heavenly and earthly perspective frequently uh, throughout Scripture. For example, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. We're going to come back to Philippians several times. It's a a fantastic book that, that Paul talks about this dichotomy often. But here he's talking about unbelievers, and he says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So the reason I brought this verse up is I want to remind us that when we set our mind on earthly things, We're acting like unbelievers. It's not who we are in Christ. That's not the way a believer should think or should act. Because Paul goes on to say, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we're just pilgrims and sojourners passing through. Our real home is in heaven. And whatever happens on this earth, again, it's just a speck on the timeline of eternity. You know, first thing I thought when I heard Gail's story is, well, God's not through with you. He must have a plan for you on this earth. I mean, He can take us home anytime He wants. I mean, for a believer, death is the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. It's just a, a, a instantaneous second where we leave this con- you know, earth constrained by sin, this realm of time, space, and matter that's all fallen, and we get to be in the presence of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, but God has a job for us to do here. And so our citizenship... Is in heaven. In uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus kind of hints at this dichotomy between heavenly and earthly perspective, and he does it in a slightly different uh, context. But he's he's talking primarily to the Pharisees and Sadducees, at least for their benefit within the sound of their hearing. We know this from the end of the uh, 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 Sermon on the Mount. But he he, say, he put he cuts right to the ch- to the chase here because these Pharisees, these scribes, these legalistic unbelieving Jewish leaders thought that it was all about crossing their T's and dotting their I's and doing things from an earthly perspective that were going to gain them fame and providence. They were the ones that walked into the room and, and everybody thought, wow, look at them. You know, they had all the, the big phylacteries around their neck, the big flowing robes, and they prayed the loud prayers and made sure when they put their money in the pot it clanged real loud so everybody would go and look. And he says to them, essentially, do not do charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have your reward from the Father in heaven. So what I want to talk about this morning is is three keys to becoming famous. I mean, everybody wants to be famous, right? But in heaven, that's the key. Three keys to becoming famous in heaven based on the example that we see set for us by the children of Israel in Nehemiah's day. And the first one is pretty simple. It starts with obedience. And as we're going to see, the people in Israel were willing to answer the call of duty. If you want to be honored by God, you've got to be obedient to God. You just, can't, you just simply can't walk in disobedience and expect heavenly rewards, heavenly commendation, uh, to hear well done. People all the time disobey God's will and God's word and get commended on earth. That's the world system, right? You just climb on whoever you have to, cheat, lie, steal, get all you can, do what you can to, to rise to worldly fame. But guess what? You know, it ends the same for everyone. You get laid in a tomb and, you know, your legacy is what it is. And someday all of those rewards, all of those accolades, all those trophies, those plaques, those positions, they're going to be forgotten. You know, you're going to, you're going to, no one's going to remember that on this earth for very long. So we look at verse 1 in, in Nehemiah chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. So there were some people that were well-known in in there, Ezra, Nehemiah, some of the other people we've talked about before. But the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. Well, who were these one out of ten? Who were these unknown people? Well, they were the ones who were obedient. Uh, And we're going to see more about that in the next verse, but they, they were willing to go you know, and step up and and be obedient. And this is a fundamental principle. Obedience for the right heart motivation. We're going to talk about that. I mean, it's not legalistically a checklist saying, well, I did this, I did this, I did this, so I'm obedient. It's what's your heart attitude. In fact, in one of the key passages on heavenly rewards is 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, and Paul makes it clear there that the rewards will be based on the counsels of the heart. What was your heart motivation? It's not how much you did for the Lord. In fact, the, the, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says at the end of that Sermon on the Mount to the Pharisees and scribes, He says, look, many are going to say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, look at all that we did. But He said, I'm going to say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. So it's not what you do that matters to get into the kingdom, and it's not what you do that matters to be rewarded in the kingdom. What, what you do with the right heart attitude is what is uh, rewarded. And so James, the Lord's brother, Uh, who got saved after the resurrection uh, and uh, were one of the earliest books of the New Testament, probably the earliest between that and Matthew, um, 44 to 47 AD. So the church was only about 10 years old at the time. And remember, James grew up with the Lord. Imagine what it must have been like sitting around the dinner table with Jesus, right? Uh, And so he heard a lot of this and And so, after he gets saved under the inspiration of the Spirit, he writes this epistle and he reminds us that we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And he goes on to say that it's the one who does the work, not just the hearer, that is blessed in what he does. Remember, this is the context where he, he compares the Christian life to looking in a mirror. And you look in the mirror and you see the face of your birth, as what the text literally says in Greek, meaning the new birth, because James has just talked about earlier in chapter 1 about how we've all been born from above spiritually by faith. So you look in the mirror and you see this new man that you are in Christ. But then you walk away and you live like the old man. You forget who you are. See, that's foolish. That's crazy. Live like the person that you are in Christ. And then he says, He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. Obedience brings blessing, not only in heaven with rewards, but on earth in terms of practical value. I mean, the whole book of Proverbs is written to contrast the way of the fool with the way of the wise. The way of the fool is going to have many pitfalls and stumbling blocks and problems because he's not following God's word. But the way of the wise who follows the word is likely to... To go much better. But either way, even if life throws you a curve and through no fault of your own, just living in this fallen world, you find yourself suffering. If you have a heavenly perspective and you're walking in the spirit, not after the flesh, you're going to be able to navigate this life successfully. Peter says something similar when he says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. Did you realize as a believer, it's possible for you to live like you did before you were saved? it's possible to live like an unbeliever? Else why would Peter command us not to do that? See, you we're supposed to be obedient children, but when we walk in the flesh and, 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 and yield to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, then we're essentially conforming to the old man and we're going to look like an unbeliever. And that's not going to be blessed and that's not going to be rewarded in heaven. But he says, by contrast, what we should be is obedient children. Uh, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And that's not just some command for the sake of a command. Jesus modeled that. He modeled obedience. Back to Philippians, we read, He found, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death. Remember, Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. He tells us in John 10 that He willingly laid down His life. As the old hymn goes, he could have called 10,000 angels, but he obeyed the will of the Father, and no one took his life from him. He laid it down willingly. He was obedient to death, even the death on the cross. So the first step to heavenly recognition is earthly obedience. The, the life we now live is essentially a testing ground, not to see whether we get into heaven, because we can never do enough to get into heaven. So, And if we could get to heaven based on a life of Obedience, then Jesus didn't have to die on the cross, right? So the whole reason that Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, took our place on the cross, died and rose again, is because we were helpless and hopeless, sold under sin. We just simply can't do enough to undo the the the, the darkness of sin in our heart. It has to be imputed to us, given to us by faith. It's a free gift. So you know, this what's fascinating about the concept of a heavenly-earthly perspective and heavenly rewards is that it sort of answers that inclination within all of us to want to do something. We're made to earn things. That's the way we are wired. God, before sin ever entered the world, God gave Adam a job. Did you ever think about that? That's part of being the image of God in man is we want to work. But the one thing we need more than anything else in the world, eternal life and salvation from the penalty of sin, we can't get by working for it. Every other religion on planet Earth, has the same pathway, and it's a dead-end street, to eternal life. Work for it. Do better. Work harder. Keep this set of rules. You know, it all works-based. But biblical Christianity says, nope, you can't get there. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. And we simply come empty-handed to receive the free gift of eternal life. Okay, so now you're saved by grace through faith. Praise God. It's a gift. You, you experience the matchless grace of God that we just sang about. Now what? Now you're still a human being. You still have this natural inclination to do things. I mean, we spend our whole life earning things, right? When you're when you're, you know, a little child, you're 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 potty trained by earning a reward. You know, if you go on the potty, you'll get an M&M, you know. And then you go to grade school and you earn you know your your grades and then you you go to junior high school and you earn your grades so you can go to high school and earn a diploma so you can get out and go to college and earn a degree so you can get out of college and earn a living your whole life but so we're wired that way so the the concept of heavenly rewards kind of answers that innate desire okay now what well, now you serve as long as God has you on this earth, however long that is. Remember, it's just a speck on the timeline of eternity. We're going to serve the Lord. But to what end and for what motive? Not to prove that we're saved, not to get into heaven, but to be rewarded. And here, well done, good and faithful servant. So it starts with obedience, but it's got to be obedience with the right heart attitude. With the right heart attitude. If you want to be famous in heaven, you've got to, Humble yourself and be willing to do what no one else wants to do. See if you want to be honored on earth, you play by the world's rules. And, and and we we mentioned that that's a that's a tough road. I mean that's just topple over whoever you can, trample them under feet, cheat, lie, steal, whatever it takes to be number one, right? But if you want to be famous in heaven, well you gotta turn the world's rules upside down and and, and think differently. It's a it's a, a thinking issue. Heavenly recognition requires an attitude that is willing to do what is right, obedience, rather than claiming your rights, right? Attitude. So we go back to the text in Nehemiah 11. It says, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves. They may have cast lots, but there were those that were willing to step forward and dwell inside the camp at Jerusalem. So if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and I've already contextualized that for us, Jesus is speaking essentially in a culture where the unbelieving Jews and their leaders thought that it was all about just doing you know, what was right and doing this checklist mentality. And so people misunderstand the the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, they, they've twisted it and, and had all kinds of bad interpretations, but it's really pretty simple when you get right down to it. It's, you can summarize the message of the Sermon on the Mount this way. It's, it's not what you do that matters. It's what's in your heart. And so to get their attention, Jesus has some pretty profound things to say, again, turning the world's perspective upside down. For example, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, tell you what, I tell you, don't resist an evil person. And in fact, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, if you don't understand the context and you don't compare Scripture with Scripture and you rip this verse out in isolation then you're going to come up with a bad theology of pacifism. You can never take up arms. You can never defend yourself, which is ludicrous when you look at the Scripture as a whole and the whole sanctity of life and defending life. And Jesus, even at the end of his ministry, tells his disciples, look, if you don't have a sword, uh, it's only because they didn't have you know, AR-15s back then, but if you don't have a sword, you better go sell your backpack and buy one because you might need a sword. You might need to defend yourself. And many other passages that speak of, of taking up arms and defending yourself. But what was Jesus saying here? He was saying that the world functions in a retributive mindset. You know, you, you, eye for an eye, punishment for punishment. You do good, you're going to get something. You know, you work hard, you're going to get something. He said, let me tell you. No, no. If somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek. He goes on, if someone takes your tunic, your robe, yeah, give him your cloak also. If he compels you to go one mile, in the culture of the, of the Roman Empire, you could be compelled, conscripted to carry supplies of the soldiers. Well, give him two. Go, go the extra mile. That's where we get that phrase from. Give to him who asks you, and, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. The idea here is think differently than the world. Now, obviously, you compare Scripture with Scripture, and you, you have discernment. There are times when the Spirit of God compels you to give to someone who's in need and other times the spirit of God says no 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 I, I would hesitate there maybe they're going to take the money and go buy drugs or maybe that's not the right thing to do or if someone's coming after you and attacking you and your family you better believe they're going to you know in my case deal with me and 357 of my friends pretty quick right so you have to use discernment to know when to follow the spirit's leading but what Jesus is saying is these people never thought in these terms it was black and white And he's saying, look, there's a time to think differently from the world. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things in, in terms of pridefulness, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. See, quite often when we're highly thought of on earth, we tend to highly think of ourselves. And, you know, we're all that. We're, we're special. We're, we're, we're pretty famous, right? Uh, and it's just pride. It's just fundamentally pride. This goes all the way back to Satan, to Lucifer in the heavenlies. But that's not the spiritual perspective. That's not the heavenly perspective. Let God do the blessing. Let God bring the increase. Let God bring uh, rewards and, and fruitfulness. Uh, so it all comes down to attitude. Why are you doing what you're doing? If you want to be famous in heaven, have the right attitude. Be willing to do maybe what no one else wants to do. And some people in Nehemiah they stepped up, and you know we don't know we don't know who they are. They don't have plaques. We don't you know write children's Bibles with little stories about the you know whoever they were, but Nehemiah tells us about them, and they were uh, mentioned because they were famous in heaven. So obedience, attitude, and then the third step is service. Service. Heavenly recognition requires a willingness to serve, to use your gifts and talents to glorify God, to be good stewards of what God's entrusted you with. So it's obedience with the right heart attitude, but then an overall perception of what is my motivation. You you ought to wake up every day and say, how can I use what God's entrusted to me for His glory, to make this ugly, dark, deep world under the control of the Luciferians like Klaus Schwab and you've all know Harari and all these other globalists trying to usher in a one world system. How can I make it a little brighter today? It, it's it's about service. And so in, in Nehemiah, we see in this chapter several of the unknown servants. There were those who ministered inside the temple. Well, we don't have a temple today. We will someday. First, the Antichrist's temple, and then ultimately Christ's temple, as Ezekiel describes, in the kingdom. But we do have a church in in the world today, and so let's make some applications uh, from uh, following the example of those unknown servants in Nehemiah's day. Well, today some people minister within the church. There's plenty to do in the local church. You know, we've just passed around a sign-up sheet today for people to help with cleanup, to help with bringing snacks, uh, lots of things that that can be done uh, in the way of volunteering. There were also those who ministered outside the temple. Well, guess what? You know, we've got work to do outside too. So in churches all across the land today, people might need to step up. Maybe that's your gift. Maybe that's something you can do. You can willingly serve and say, hey, I'll help mow or paint or fix or clean or, or, or you know repair the fence or whatever it might be. And by the way, if uh, if you want to serve and, these capacities. Let us know. We we probably have something that you can do. Let Paul know. Paul is kind of the the chief steward, if you will, that keeps this incredible facility looking uh, pristine as it does. And and by the way, aren't we blessed to have such great uh, facilities? I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I've been in churches that have have million dollar budgets and and dozens of staff that don't look as nice as our church do. I can promise you that it, it does. I mean, uh, our our church is is well cared for and well taken care. Of. We, we believe that the Lord gave it to us. It's debt-free, by the way. We don't pay any debt on anything. We've Everything we've done recently, some of the renovations, the parking lot, the, the security system, some of the upgrades in AV, all of that because of the generosity of God's people, and we're being good stewards of what God's entrusted to us. We're not going into debt. Uh, so maybe you can minister outside. Then there were those who prayed. We read about that in verse 17. So maybe you can have a ministry of prayer. Um, and there were those who helped with worship, you know, Mike and, and, and Bonnie and, and Julie and Kelsey and others. We've had people come and go through the years that have used their gifts and talents. Um, Jesse and Carol, I meant to fail to mention them. They were in the early service, but they've stepped up and helped at times, filling in. Uh, I don't want to speak for Mike, but I would assume that if anybody here is gifted and talented in the air of music and you'd like to serve in that role, he'd welcome the addition, Right. Come see them, you know. We've got a nice stage. We've had through the years uh, that I've been here, we've had as many as 20 people in the worship team and at any one time 12 to 14 on stage, if you can imagine that. So, you know, it kind of comes and goes as the Lord brings people in and leads people out. Uh, But, you know, there are different ways uh, to serve. And Jesus talked about this concept of service. Again, he sets the example. um, And he says, if you want to be... If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Again, turning the world's philosophy on its head. That's not what the world says, you know. I talk about this in, I don't even remember which book it is now. It might have been in the top ten reasons or one of the Spirit of the Antichrist books, but in the the context of pride. And I, I did some research and I cite several professional business journals that talk about how in this postmodern age, the millennials today, it's all about being as prideful as you can. The narcissism epidemic. Yeah, I think it was in, in, in volume two of Spirit of the Antichrist, now that I think about it, the whole narcissism epidemic. And the world says, that's good. You want to, we need more narcissists, because the, the CEOs, the top tier, the ones that achieve the most and make the most, and the billionaires on Wall Street, these are all narcissists. So follow their example, and you'll be rich. Well, guess what? They're going to die like everybody else. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen a Brinks truck in a funeral procession. I mean, you can't take it with you, right? It's going to stay behind. So to what end? So that's the world's philosophy. Jesus said, no, no, no. It's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. you remember the story Jesus told? I don't have it on the screen, but it comes to my mind of, of, the, of the supper. And he says, when you come in, you, you may be a dignitary, you may be a VIP, but don't don't take your seat in the front, because how embarrassing would it be if somebody that was a greater VIP than you, someone more important than you, came in after you, and so one of the ushers taps you on the shoulder and says, "Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, ma'am. I'm going to have to ask you to move to the back." And of course, by that time, all the all the seats are mostly taken, so you're you're left, you know, sitting in the far back behind a pole where you can't see the speaker, right? And it's embarrassing. He said, "It's better for you." To come in humbly and take a less desirable seat. Because then you might just hear someone tap you on the shoulder and say, Hey, glad to see you. Guess what? We'd like you to join us on the platform. We've got a seat up front for you. You're important. So think like Christ's attitude and Christ's example. Humble yourself, right? Going back to Romans 12, in the context of gifts within the church, Paul says, All the members do not have the same function. Uh, you know, we're each individual members of one another. And he says he's given differing gifts according to the grace that was given us. So spiritual gifts are different from talents and abilities that is unique for the church age where the Holy Spirit endows individual believers with certain gifts for the edification of the body as a whole. he says, let us use them. Let us serve, right? If your gift is prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. And that time it was still a revelatory age. The Bible wasn't complete yet. God was still giving new revelation through apostles and prophets and some people had the gift of prophecy. When it says in proportion to our faith he means we should use our gifts trusting God as much as we can recognizing that it's God that's really working in in, and through us. If it's in ministering, minister. If it's teaching, teach. Exhortation, encouragement, let, let them exhort. Giving, that's a gift. Give liberally. Um, so it's the only time we're told to be liberal in the Bible, right? Um, if it's in leading, lead with diligence, right? Shows mercy, be cheerful when you're uh, showing mercy, right? Another Wiersbe quote, Wiersbe said, Spiritual gifts are tools to build with, not toys to play with or weapons to fight with. So serve, use your gifts uh, on earth during this speck on the timeline. Going back to Philippians Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each of us esteem others better than himself. That word lowliness of mind is one word in Greek. The only time it's ever used, not only in the Bible but anywhere, Paul essentially under the inspiration of the Spirit coins a phrase. Because in the Greek culture there was really no way to speak of looking lowly on yourself. It was all about egotism and pride. And so he says, think lowly low of yourself, have low thoughts of yourself, not in a depressed, self-deprecating way, but in a humble way, looking out not only for your own interest, but the interest of others. So it's about service. So if you want to be famous in heaven, obedience with the right heart attitude and a willingness, a a prevailing underlying attitude of service, how can I make this world a little bit better? But what is the result then of being unknown on earth? Well, heavenly rewards, that's the bottom line. Always remember, heavenly rewards are more important than earthly returns. The world tells us earthly returns are what matters the most, right? How much have you earned? What is your legacy? You know, what do people think of you, your fame, your fortune, and so forth? No, no, heavenly rewards are always more important than earthly rewards. Eternal salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it, but rewards are something that uh, very much... Uh, play into our life of of service. So the unknown on earth will be well known in heaven. That's what the Bible says. The unknown on earth will be well known in heaven if they have the right heart attitude. Here's that passage I talked about earlier and Jesus says, You who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones. Indeed, everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, or lands, that kind of reminds me of what we're dealing with in Nehemiah, Uh, they, they left their homestead and instead moved into this City in the process of being rebuilt. For my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Inherit is one of those words in Scripture that, like all words, has to be understood in its context. Sometimes it means eternal life. That is the inheritance that's gained by by free gift by faith. For example, 1 Corinthians 6. But sometimes it has more of a concept of rewards. What do you get? What's the quality of your eternal life when you get there? What are your uh, rewards? And Jesus says... Again, this heavenly, earthly concept contrast. Those who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. So a lot of people completely miss the point of these discipleship passages, and they blur the distinction between salvation, which is a free gift, and rewards, which are earned by acts done with the right heart motivation. And so they said, oh, if you want to get to heaven, you've got to leave your house, leave your brother or sister, your father or mother. You've got to not look back when you put your hand to the plow. You've got to count the cost. Not true at all. All of those are rewards passages writ- written to people and spoken to people that are already saved. And so that's what Jesus is saying here in answer to Peter's question. When Peter says, look, we're, we're sacrificing a lot for you, Lord. What are we going to get when we get there? And he said, well, I'll tell you, you know, everyone who's, who's sacrificed a lot will be rewarded appropriately with an appropriate inheritance. Uh, what about when Jesus spoke to the church in Sardis? This is another passage that's woefully misunderstood and misinterpreted. But in the first three chapters of Revelation, we have seven letters to the churches where Jesus gives some uh, exhortation and commendation uh, and rebuke to these churches. And he says to the church in Sardis, he who overcomes, three things are going to happen. Number one, they will be clothed in white garments. Number two, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. And number three, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Well, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people apply this or preach about it or write about it or teach about it and say, well, you better be careful or your name will be blotted out of the the book of life. But number one rule of hermeneutics is observation. Does the text say your name can be blotted out of the book of life? Not at all. In fact, he explicitly says it will not be. And this is an example of a figure of speech that we use in English as well called litotes. It just means to emphasize a positive by denying the negative. And all three of these things are saying the same thing. Which is, God will honor you in heaven. You're going to be given special clothing. Uh, When it says, I will not blot out his name, that's a way of saying, I'm going to emphasize it. I'm going to highlight it. I'm going to put a star by it. We do this all the time in English. We'll say, for example, an athlete breaks a record in the Olympics and the announcer will go, man, that was no small feat. Well, what does he mean? That was a great accomplishment. Or we might say, boy, that was not bad. What do you mean? I was a really good, right? It's, I can think of several more if I took the time, but they're, it's very common. When you put a negative in front of it, it's just a way to emphasize it. It's not suggesting at all that there's some kind of cause and effect. And if you don't toe the line, he's going to erase your name. He's saying, I'm not going to do that if you overcome. I'm going to bless and honor and highlight you. And then the third thing, which all of these relate to special recognition, is I'm going to confess you before the Father and before the angels. Now, I want you to get the scene here. You're in heaven. By the grace of God, through faith, it's a free gift. But now we're in heaven, and Jesus comes out, puts his arm around you, and says, "Hey, come with me." You know, come, come with me. Uh, you know, I, I, wanna, I want, I want to, I just follow me. And you're thinking, "Wow, I didn't think you could do anything wrong in heaven. What did I do? I've only been here five minutes. I've already made a mistake." So say, say it's Nick. So, Nick, come with me. So, so Jesus walks in, you walk down this hall, you, open, you come into this palatial looking double doors and you open the door and there's God sitting behind the desk in his office. And Jesus says, Father, you got a minute? God says, sure, come on in. I just wanted to introduce you to my servant, Nick. He was one of the faithful ones. He sacrificed a lot. He served you faithfully. And I just wanted you to, I just wanted to confess him before you. That's what the text says. And we see that in a lot of other places too. That one of the rewards of faithfulness is special recognition in heaven. So uh, the unknown on earth will be well known in heaven. And finally, the efforts of the unknown may go unnoticed by men, but you better believe they'll be remembered by God. Back to the Sermon on the Mount where we uh, began. He says, Moreover, when you fast, this is again, think of the Pharisees here. Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. They disfigure their faces so that they may appear to men to be fasting. They want everybody to know how spiritual they are, right? He says, they've got their reward. The, the, the people who looked at you and said, Wow, you must be really spiritual because you're fasting today. I hope you enjoyed it. That was your reward. That little moment. But he says, when you fast anoint your head, clean it up, comb your hair, uh, wash your face so that you don't appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And then your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly because God is not unjust, the writer of Hebrews says, to forget your work and labor of love. The efforts of the unknown may go unnoticed on earth, but they surely will be remembered by God in heaven. By the way, Coincidentally, this is another example of litotes. It's not suggesting here that it's possible for God to be unjust. That would violate God's attributes. He cannot possibly be unjust. So just because he says God is not unjust, what he's saying is God is particularly just and will not forget your work and labor of love. And God, if your overcomer, will not blot out your name. He will highlight it. He will emphasize it. You're not just going to be in the book of life. You're going to get special Recognition, the rewards for the unknown are based on personal faithfulness, not public applause. That's why Paul said in Colossians, whatever you do, do it heartily to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Again, not eternal life in this case, but rewards, the quality of a reward when you get there because you serve the Lord Christ. One of the last things scripture records Jesus as saying in in Revelation 22 is, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. Now, if you know anything about the teaching of scripture from Genesis to Revelation and the biblical concept of grace, you know that the reward that he's carrying when he comes back isn't entrance into heaven. Because we don't get entrance into heaven based on our work. The Bible couldn't be more clear about that. Not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us. For by grace are you save through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the reward that he's talking about here is based on our work, based on our obedience, our attitude, our service, all with the right heart motivation while we live out our days on this earth. So the question is are you willing to be unknown? Do you long for the applause of heaven more than the cheers of men? That's a good way to think of it as we wake up every day. Uh, I mean, I get it. It's it's nice to hear people say, good job, right? And we need to encourage one another with that in the Lord. Uh, I mean, we we, at Not By Works, we appreciate the encouraging emails and texts and things that we get. We appreciate those a lot more than the critical ones. Uh, And it's nice. I'll be honest with you. But why are we doing what we're doing? We have to check our motive all the time. And our passion is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. We know the time is short. We want as many people as possible to hear the gospel and, uh, and be saved. So resist that crave for earthly fame. And to quote Jesus one last time from the Sermon on the Mount, store up treasures in heaven. The stuff we store up here, you know, we just cleaned out our garage yesterday. You know, some of that stuff we've carried around for 30 something years. And, and, and if the Lord comes back tomorrow, it's going to be left behind. And if we live out our days, it's going to be left behind. And then our kids and grandkids will have to deal with it. And, but it's just going to rust and corrupt and moths and stuff, especially here in Colorado with the Miller moths, you know, everywhere. But we want to store up treasures in heaven of eternal value based on a life of faithful service. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just this reminder and the example that these unknown people in, in, in Nehemiah's day set willingly stepping up to go and live in a less desirable uh, place and uh, i pray that you would raise up people in the body of christ today men women young people who are similarly willing to think in terms of heavenly rewards and not earthly accolades and i just pray that if there's anyone here today that's listening to this message that doesn't know your son and our savior as their personal savior from sin they would take that initial step first. Stop trying to earn what can't be earned, but receive it as a free gift by faith. And then having been born again, would then seek in a pureness of heart to simply serve you, uh, realizing that we're here for a purpose. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Uh, and we ask for your blessings now as we dismiss. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.